Christians have periods of time with little or no testing, but that's not the norm. Don't get used to that. If you have a period going on in your life right now where your faith is not being tested, I am so grateful to God that He has given you this break. more. We're going to ask God's help here. God, we struggle because our human nature gets in the way. Our sin nature gets in the way. We have a hard time comprehending what we're supposed to. We wander off on all kinds of rabbit trails, and we don't need that or want that this morning. You know our hearts. You know where we are. We ask that you would do that thing which to us is a mystery, whereby your spirit, you take your word, And apply it to the depths of who we are, our hearts. We ask you to guide us and direct us and that we would not take one step without you. In Jesus' name we pray, all God's people said, amen. So we begin this series looking at James as a man, as an author, as the little brother of Jesus, And as the doulos of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what he calls himself. The problem with living this out is not in the calling itself. We need to get that into our heads this morning. The reason that we struggle with this is not because the thing that has been set before us is too difficult for us. Nor is the problem with the word of God. The problem is with you and with I and our proclivity to be our own God. The problem is with you and with I, with us together, and our proclivity to be our own God. To have no master but ourselves. And we need to just recognize this morning that this particular time that we live in, this culture praises autonomy and self as master of self. And that ideology fails us for at least two reasons. Two I will give you this morning, at least two. First, it fails us practically. Because you and I are not God, amen? Just very practically speaking, it fails us because you and I are not God. And second, it fails us fundamentally because it feeds a pride and gives us a sense that we all have authority that we choose to accept. So what we're talking about here is sovereignty. Human sovereignty versus divine sovereignty. This is going to be a struggle for you and I for the rest of our lives. 
It's not something that just goes away tomorrow and we're like, okay, I'm a Christian now, so I just always do what God wills. No, that's not the way that we live this life, unfortunately. It's what we should strive for. It's what we should work toward. But it doesn't come automatically. So we talk about God's sovereignty all the time. We are spending so much time always talking about God's sovereignty. We talk about it when people pass. Well, God is in control. God has His ways. We talk about it in our songs. We sing songs about God being Lord, about Him being Master of all, about Him being sovereign. We talk about God's sovereignty all the time, but we have to be honest this morning about where we stand. Often we call God sovereign, or we verbally recognize His sovereignty. But when we say that, you and I don't always mean that He is our Master. You and I don't always mean that He is sovereign over our lives. Sometimes for us, we have to be honest this morning, it is merely words. It is merely words on the screen. To be holy. To be holy. Ready to do your will. We recognize Him as having the title Master. But often we fail to recognize Him as having the authority and the power to carry out that name. There are a lot of kids today living that way with their parents. A child is the best illustration of the authority principle ever. You can't get a better illustration than a child. For many children, mom and dad are titles with no thrust. They are literally just names. So you get a child that's like six or seven and they're seeking to find their individual life, and as they get older into teenhood, we know that they seek it even more. It's not the same for an infant or a toddler, though, is it? That name has power. Mom, Dad. That title has power because they're completely dependent on us. That's not the case with older kids always, though. They think that they can get along without their parents. They develop a desire for autonomy and individual authority. But do you know when they want mom and dad to have the authority? When do children who seek to be autonomous want mom and dad to have authority? When they're in trouble. Amen? That's when they want their mother and father all of a sudden to have the power. When they're in trouble, they will happily, very happily relinquish all self-mastery, all authority. Doesn't that kind of sound like us as Christians in our relationship with God? We kind of seek to have all this authority and power. We want control over our own destiny. I want to decide what my next step is. And then when I get into trouble, where's the first place I turn? It's, it's to God. God, fix this. So we say, God, honor my efforts. Our efforts obviously are not honoring to God at that moment. We're not doing His will. We're doing our own because we have things figured out. And what happens? We end up running. It's when we are in trouble that we realize there is a balance that we have forgotten. There is a balance in this life. There is a balance of sovereignty. Yes, we have human responsibility. Yes, there are things we are to do. But God is totally sovereign, totally in control. But it's only when we're in trouble that we realize that we've forgotten the balance. And it's then that we want Him to be master. It's then that we are willing to be the doulos. Not only willing, but wanting And what James is going to teach each one of us 
throughout the rest of this great book is how to practically live out that life as a doulos, without hypocrisy. So, I want to look at just a couple points. I have the verse up here. It's faded in a couple places. I'm sorry about that. This looks a lot different on a computer screen than it does on the wall. I guarantee you. We're going to look at the first point that we get from this inspired word this morning. I'm going to read it with everyone. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Say those last three words together loud and proud. Lacking in nothing. First point that we get from the inspired word this morning. It isn't a promise that your trials as a doulos will cease. But a promise that they will come. First promise that we get from the passage this morning is that trials will come. Let's look at the last phrase real quick so we know where we're heading. Lacking in nothing. So vitally important that we grasp this this morning. Those three words are vital to yours and my understanding of our passage this morning, lacking in nothing. That is where we are heading. Now, with regard to trials and tests of faith, I want to ask everyone a a question this morning, very practical. How many of us here, by a show of hands, feel as though you are fully, complete, and perfect, lacking in nothing for the next trial that will come your way? Take a look around. There's nobody. We all feel that even though God has things coming our way, lovingly coming our way, we don't really feel like we're ready for what's to come. And you may be thankful that I didn't give you enough time to raise your hand to know what you would be asking upon yourself. God, I'm ready. Go ahead and send that stuff my way. I am totally ready for what you have. But the truth is none of us are honestly fully prepared for what God has coming our way. Many of us are willing to say to God, Lord, try my faith. I am fully equipped to take whatever you send my way, but not too much. Lord, I am fully equipped to take whatever you send my way, but please don't do this. We are willing to step in and be the sovereign, be God, be in control, and have God serve us instead. Not many of us are willing to say that, truly, God, test me. No one really says that. Why? Because we avoid trials with every fiber of our being. If you love trials, say amen. No one loves trials. No one. No one wants their faith to truly be tested because it usually hurts. Amen? When yours and my faith is tested, it is never a comfortable thing. It's never a soft thing. Oh, I'm glad I made it by that. That wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Testing hurts. But that isn't what people want in their Christianity. But uh, I'm going to tell everyone, as we're going to read, having true joy will be missed if we do not experience trials. Without experiencing and staying, we will miss out on the true 
joy. So the passage that we are in today is going to give us practical steps toward not only being prepared for future trials, but how to have joy in the midst of them. And I don't know about everybody else, but that's a struggle for me. I want joy in the midst of trials. I want it. Do you want joy in the midst of trials? Amen. We want joy in the midst of trials. James is going to tell us how to do that. But as we continue, we need to keep in mind a simple fact. If you, I speak to all of us, if you are the be-all, end-all of authority in your life, then this will mean absolutely nothing. If for you, in your practical daily life, you are the be-all, end-all of all of your circumstances, then nothing James has to say will apply to you in the least. It won't work. If you are master, and you want a God that serves you, as you are in need, then nothing that James has to say will change your life. I love the book of the Bible because it changes my life. I see how it changes the lives of those that I love as they really throw themselves into it. Every single time we start a new sermon series, that's what I'm trying to do is get everyone to throw themselves into it. We all want change in our lives. We know we want more Christ-likeness. That's where we need to be headed. But if we are the master and we want a God that serves us, we're not going to see that change. So you and I need to make a commitment here and now. I just want to interrupt the sermon for five seconds and I want to do this. That we will begin to relinquish our self-mastery. It's idolatry. And begin to give the authority over day by day to God. So I want to take just a moment in an awkward change of pace to do what I feel with all my heart needs to be done here for all of us. Everyone just close their eyes and bow their heads And I'm not going to ask anyone to raise a hand or do anything strange, but I am going to ask you to take your hands and turn them palm up, open in front of you. No one's looking at you. No one thinks you're doing anything weird. This is symbolic this morning. Our eyes are closed. Our heads are bowed. Our palms are up and open before the Lord this morning. And I just want everyone to participate in this, whether or not you mean it. I want everyone to participate. And I want everyone to just sit here in this moment and consider all that we've discussed thus far and realize that you are about to enter a study in the living Word of God. God is going to say some things to you, and you have a choice before you. I've asked hands to be open, and this is meant to be symbolic of your willingness to remain this way with your life before God. As you sit there with your palms open, This is symbolic of a commitment that you're making this morning, no matter where you are in your faith, no matter how long you've been a believer. What's in your hands, everyone? Say it. Nothing. What's in your hands, everyone? One more time. Nothing. You and I are holding in our hands all the authority we have in this life that has not been given to us. This morning, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and our hands open, in the palms of our hands, we are holding all of the authority that we have that has not been given to us. If your faith is going to begin to work, this has to be our posture. You feel that, everyone? It feels awkward and uncomfortable because you are sitting here in the presence of people. But you're also sitting here in the presence of Almighty God. 
The verse from the hymn says, Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Open your eyes, everybody. How can we be prepared for the trials that are coming our way? How can you and I honestly be lacking in nothing for the trials that are headed toward us? First thing we have to do, very important right before us, is change our thinking. Everything that we change in our lives starts with a change in thinking. This is consistent no matter where you are in your faith. Every change you make has to start with a change in your thinking. This is very important. Listen, this is not something God is going to do for you. It's not something God is going to do for me. He doesn't say, I will give you joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. What's he tell us to do? Count it all joy. Count it all joy. This is not something God is going to do for us. God gives us a new heart through redemption, through the cross, through the blood of Jesus, through the new covenant. But it is the job of you and I to change the way we think about trials. For most of us, we dislike trials. We don't want them. We want to be as far away from them as possible. But it is your job and my job individually and corporately, to count trials as joy. We are being commanded to do something here. To count, consider, or reckon. Count, consider, or reckon it all joy when we come upon these trials, when they come to us. Now, what does this not mean? This does not mean that you are insane. Because some people will believe that you are insane if you are smiling, though you are being tortured at times in your life. This is not what God calls us to do. God has never and will never call us to hypocrisy. God always calls us to truth. He always calls us to a standard of authenticity. So when you are called to count it all joy, this is not something fake. This is not something put on your happy grin and move along. This is something very, very deep that God wants you to do, and it must be authentic, and it must be something that you and I do. We don't pretend. There is no promise that trials will not hurt. But there is a command that we have. The first of the 52 imperatives of the book of James that we're going to see here in front of us. A command to count it all joy. You say, well, how does that work? How do I have joy in the midst of pain? Well, it's because of our perspective. It's because of our outlook. We're looking not only at what we're facing in this moment, we look at what come. See, we have a unique position as Christians to know the ending before we even take our next step. God has already told us what we're going to get. There are blessings in counting our trials as joy. But before we look at the result of our trials, let's look at this perfectly vague description of the kinds of trials. When you meet trials of various kinds, some of us like the Bible to be as specific as possible, and, and probably on our first go around reading the book of James, this looks fairly specific. But if you think about it, it's actually quite vague. First, I want everyone to notice the guarantee of trials. Notice the guarantee. 
The passage does not say, if you meet trials. The passage says, what's that word? When you meet trials. Trials are guaranteed for the believer. They are guaranteed for those who are in Christ. Friends, if you are in Christ, you will meet trials. It is a settled matter. No, Lord, not me, except me, everyone else but me. I'll be an encourager. No, that's not for you. If you profess faith in Christ and your faith has never been tried, the Bible says you are not a believer. You need to examine yourself to find out whether or not you are in the faith. Notice it says, my brothers, collectively, the church. If we're not facing trials, we need to step back and ask why. Where is my faith truly? Now, Christians have periods of time with little or no testing, but that's not the norm. Don't get used to that. If you have a period going on in your life right now where your faith is not being tested, I am so grateful to God that He has given you this break. But it's not going to stay. God tests the faith of His kids. We need to stop and consider whether or not we're truly in the faith with regard to the second. Notice, not only the guarantee of trials, notice that that is promised. The guarantee that trials will come is promised. Here it is. When you meet trials, what's not promised is the frequency. When. When is such a vague word, isn't it? It's beautifully vague. They're coming. When? None of us know. But I know they're coming if they're not already here. Why? Because God says trials will come. Third, also very vague, but important. So notice, not only there's a promise of trials, there's no promise of the frequency, there's also no promise of the intensity. We don't know what kind of trials are coming because the Bible calls them trials of various kinds. Very vague. Expect the testing of your faith to come with variety because as the old adage says, variety is the spice of life. Some last a long time, amen? Some are short, amen? Some hurt, some are less painful, some come with a break before the next, and some go hand in hand with the next, but regardless of the frequency or intensity of trials or tests of faith, you and I are to count up eating them as joy. We're not only to consider them joy, but notice what's here. This is like the impossible. Not only count it joy, but count it, what's that word? All joy. Good, Lord, help us. This thing that's before me, I need to consider all that joy. All that is to be joy to me. That's a consistent attitude throughout every trial. You and I need to have joy there in the moment. So why would we count it joy? Well, it's the same reason that you're excited when you go out and you plant a garden. You're excited when you're doing the work, even though you're sweating and you're dirty and smelly. And uh, by the time you finish and everything's in nice, neat rows, you are excited because you're looking forward to the harvest. Because eventually, one day, we will get to eat the corn that we just planted. Why is it that when you start a work week, why should you go there with joy? Because at the end of the week, you will reap fruit 
of the harvest, which we call a paycheck. All the labor that you put into it, you know at the end of the week you are going to get paid. That is a very good thing. You get the idea. The trial that is before you is not pointless. And if you think of it that way, you will have no joy because you cannot. If you think what is in front of you is pointless, this thing that you are facing, God, why would you even give this thing to me? If you believe that it's pointless, you will not have joy. You cannot. This trial... I assume everyone in here is going through a trial. As a matter of fact, most of you, I know you're going through many, just as I am. This trial is doing something. That's a promise from Scripture. It's doing something that comes in no other way. Why? What is it that's coming? Well, look at what we're promised here. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Produces steadfastness. It's the ability to remain there under the trial. It's like, well, well, why would I want that? Why would I want the ability to stay underneath the trial? This is like exercise. I read an article this week about a man who was 650 pounds. 650 pounds. He could no longer get out of his recliner. Why? Because his legs could no longer support his weight. He couldn't walk anymore. He was frustrated with himself. He was angry. He had nothing but tears. He had nothing but shouts. He lift his arms hurted. And one day, they hurt him. One day, sitting there in the chair, he got so frustrated, he picked up his arms and he shook them and screamed. And in just doing that once, do you know what he started to do? He started to sweat. He thought to himself, wait a minute. That's almost exercise. So he put on his favorite songs on his dish, and as he was listening to songs, he sat there dancing in his chair. And as he was dancing in his chair, he sweat more and more and more. Well, weeks go by, and before you know it, that man can now stand. Why? Because he's strengthening up muscles that he hadn't used in a long time, muscles that had failed him because of abuse. Now he can support his own weight again. No longer bound to his recliner. Once he was stuck, but one day in frustration when he screamed and broke out into that sweat, he realized in that moment that he wasn't helpless. So he just worked up a sweat from his chair. He danced, and he danced, and he began to walk with his walker, and soon pounds started to fall off. And to this day, this was yesterday's story, that man is currently 300 pounds, which is amazing. He lost one and a quarter of himself. The guy's muscles gained strength, and it hurt less and less. So what's the point? Why would I even share that with you? He had the ability to stay, but it was produced by the testing of his muscles. It was because he tested his muscles and kept going, even though it hurt, that he built up strength. If you and I do the best to wiggle out of every trial unscathed, you and I will never develop steadfastness because it's only promised. It's only promised when we have testing of our faith. It comes from being in that trial until the end. Then the next trial that is of equal strength will be easier. Why? Because that muscle becomes stronger. This is only produced through trials. 
And this should cause us to reckon it as joy because we know that trials are doing something. They're not pointless. God was not bored this morning when this thing came to you. God was not bored last week and said, oh, what can I do to him? No, it's not how sovereignty works. It's not how God works. God is loving. Trials do something. So what is the testing of our faith? It is the testing of where it is. I said this two weeks ago. I just want to re-mention this one more time. The testing of your faith is to test where you are, not so that God knows, but that you know. The testing of my faith is not so that God says, I wonder what Jason really believes in. Let me give him this. No, God knows where I believe. God knows what I believe. The trials that he gives to me is so that he can reveal to me what's in my heart. So that when I turn to something other than him, I can say, Ah, I was not dependent upon the Lord whom I call Master. He's really not my Lord. I am the Lord of my life. If you say your faith is in God, then trials and testing of your faith will prove where it is. Notice our next imperative. So the first imperative is count it all joy. We have to consider it. We have to reckon it. We have to think of it as joy when we go through trials. Second imperative, let. This is a word that some translations remove from different parts of Proverbs, and it makes me sick because it is a word that needs to be there. It's a small word, but it reveals to us a need to allow something to happen. We need to let steadfastness have its full effect. We've got to let it have its work. But steadfastness is not the end game of trials. It's another link in the chain that will produce something else. What? Well, let's look at how the next link comes together. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Let yourself stand joyful under the weight. This means that you and I, in the position that we're in before the trial that we're in, we allow this thing to happen. We are going to count it joy because we know what's coming, and we are going to stand steadfast because we know what is happening. We are going to allow this thing to happen. We are going to bear up under the weight. Why? What's the purpose? Why would God put His children through these trials? Steadfastness is not the end game. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word perfect is speaking of our maturity. That means that it's in trials, through trials, that God grows us up. We don't want to be infants in our faith, amen? We want to be mature. We want to be able to stand in difficult situations. We want to be able to be a blessing and encouragement to others. Spiritual infants encourage no one. Spiritual infants encourage no one. You are of very little help to a seasoned believer that is going through a difficult time in their life. We aim at maturity. We hope for and pray for maturity. This is what this perfection is. It's not sinless perfection. It is Christ-likeness. To be perfect and complete is to be like Christ in this respect. It's to be grown up. And the more time goes by, 
the more we as the church, this is the church at large, are just producing spiritual infants. We have so many that are out there right now. And God's desire for you and me is to be molded into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is maturity. Maturity is Christ-likeness. The more we become like Christ, the less we lack. The more we become like Christ, the less we lack. There are trials coming our way, maybe next week, maybe in two years, maybe ten years, things that will be difficult, things that will be hard. Listen. Maturity doesn't come from what we want. You can want maturity, you can want it, but it won't come that way. Maturity isn't simply granted to us by God the Father. It's not. You're not going to find a passage in Scripture where God says, and I will give maturity to this guy and and not this gal, or to this gal and not this guy. You won't find it. It comes from an active faith and a godly perspective where we understand that God is God and that He is accomplishing something. He is accomplishing something in His children. And then, through His children. Pray with me this morning. God, give us strength to trust. To hope and lean on You. We welcome trials this morning only because we know that they come from you and that they serve a purpose.